not know. I am not the normal speaker here. I'm not even all that normal. Our normal speaker is out of town. I have been asked to fill in. I'm about the, uh, I don't know, fifth or sixth string speaker here. So this would be the equivalent of going to what you hoped would be a big time, awesome college football game and finding out that the you know, fifth string walk-on quarterback is gonna have to play for both teams. Uh, and so, you know, welcome to that game, right? So here we are. Now we were having a few technical difficulties this morning. I think the extremely intelligent gentlemen in the back have them ironed out as best as possible. But went up here eyeballing that in between class and services. I found this <laughs> laying behind the podium. My first thought was that this little prank is a short joke and might I add a really good one. Uh, my second thought immediately after the first thought is that someone whose last name is Sledge probably put this up here, but I want to clear the names of all of the innocent. Apparently it was left up here by some children the other evening. I am going to move it because I would trip over this. I move around a lot and you know, I've given you enough. I don't want you to have that on video for life. All right, so, but Sledge's names are cleared. They did not put it here. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Outside of maybe what's your name or where you're from, is that not the number one question you get asked throughout your entire childhood? What do you want to be when you grow up? You even get asked it, like, why you're still in college. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Consequently, I've learned that the number one question you get asked when people find out you're the speaker of the hour is not, are you going to encourage us this morning? Are you going to bring us a message straight from the Word of God this morning? Do you remember? Are you ready? It's, are you going to get us out on time? But that's another, another story. The answer is, of course not, have I ever? All right. But what do you want to be when you grow up? I want you to think back to when you were a kid. Some of you, that's a lot more thinking than others. But let's think back to when you were a kid and you were asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I grew up about 30 minutes west of here in Hueytown, western Jefferson County. I had a cousin. He had seen some movie, documentary, something, I don't know. He decided he wanted to be a marine biologist and study ocean life. Sounds cool, right? Okay. Except he was kind of real attached to home. And he would just openly tell you he didn't want to leave home for either college or a career. But he still determined he was going to be a marine biologist and study ocean life. Now, being the good cousin and friend that I was, I tried to help out. I climbed the tallest tree I could find, and I looked north, south, east, and west as far as I could see for the fabled old man Kelty's ocean, and I did not see an ocean in western Jefferson County. So needless to say, my cousin did not become a marine biologist. He did stay at home, but not a marine biologist. Uh, several years ago, and Bowen was probably four or five, I guess I could have told him I was going to tell this this morning. Uh, Bowen was probably four or five, I was put into bed one night, and out of the blue he says, Dad, I know what I want to be when I grow up. Now, as we had not been having this conversation previously, this was not part of a larger conversation. I was kind of curious where his mind was going with this and what had sparked this. So I said, son, what, what, tell me what that's going to be. He said, Dad, I want to be a boss. Okay. Son, um, that's kind of, you know, open to interpretation. You know, what, boss of what? What kind of career? What are you wanting? He said, I don't know. Just know I want to be a boss. Why, why is that, son? I finally just want to be able to tell somebody what to do. Now, looking back into his psychology, he had his mother and I there all the time to tell him what to do and when to do it. And it's possible, just barely possible, that he had a slightly bossy and overbearing older sister. And that boy was used to getting told what to do 24 hours a day. And the boy said, I just want to be able to tell somebody else what to do. That's what he wanted to be when he grew up as a boss. 
But think back when you were a kid. I mean, what were some of the answers? Think about you, think about your friends. You know, what were the things you heard, said, thought about? You know, there's, there's the standards, and I'm sure this changes with generation to generation, but there's the standards. There's, you know, doctor, there's lawyer, there's veterinarian, want to help the animals. They don't care about the people, they want to help the animals. Yeah, you know, doctor, lawyer, veterinarian, you know, police, fireman, you know, something like that. Um, professional athlete, that's a, that's a big one, right? All these things, if you think about them, you know, they fall into one of several categories. They're either heroic or high paying or visible and, and prestigious or noble in some way, maybe not a lawyer. But, you know, we see ourselves as something high up on the ladder. You know, in some way or shape or form, we see ourselves up here. That's what we want. We may end up here, but what we want when you ask us, what's in our nature? We want to be up here, that's as far as I can reach, sorry. We want, we want to be up at the top, right? We want something special, something good. That's how we envision ourselves. We're too prideful to dream of anybody else, or anything else, excuse me. I never once in all my 42 years have heard anyone say, you know what? I want to be a servant. I want a life of servitude. Or to use a term we're going to use biblically interchangeably this morning, I've certainly never heard someone say, you know what? I want to be a slave. Ever heard that? No, none of you, none of the, how many people in this room have ever heard that? I, I don't even have to ask. I know the answer to that already. No one's ever said that. Little boys want to grow up to be Bruce Wayne, not Alfred. Little girls, when they say, I want to play Cinderella, they mean the Cinderella at the end of the movie with the gown and the crown and the prince and the castle and the carriage and all that. That's what they mean. They don't mean I want to be the Cinderella from the beginning of the movie where I'm forced into a life of servitude to my evil stepmother and stepsisters, right? They, they Cinderella, they're, they're the princess, not the servant, right? We don't dream of being a servant or a slave, but whether we like it or not, we will serve something. Be opening in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 28. There are multiple places we could go, but we'll start there this morning. There are many places in the Bible that give us a direct example that we will serve. And this is nearing the end of Moses' days in charge of Israel. And this is Moses giving them some final warnings. You know, if you serve God, here are some blessings. If you don't serve God, here are some cursings that are going to come upon you, some punishments. And to put it in a succinct couple of verses, Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, in the lack of all things, and he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. So this morning, with the remainder of our time, and probably a little more than that, we're going to break down this passage and a couple others like it because we're going to study all aspects of those three daunting words that we have to deal with. Let's see if, there we go. You will serve. Now, so you know ahead of time, because everybody likes to know this, number five. We can remember that, right? I got five points. Not three, unfortunately, but not seven. We've got five points we're going to go through this morning concerning you will serve. So which way I got to point this? This way, I think. All right, well, tell me which direction. There we go. I may have to do it for me at some points this morning. First point, whoa, whoa. let's back up one. There we go. It is unavoidable that you will serve a master. Now, I'm not going to read it again. We just read Deuteronomy 27, excuse me, Deuteronomy 28, 47, and 48, where we learn that the Israelites would either serve God, here's option one, or they would serve their enemies. 
There's option two. Servitude was never a question. It was a foregone conclusion. Servitude is a fact. It's just a matter of who is it going to be? Who are you going to serve? Now, I'm going to have three what we're going to call home-based passages this morning. So if you've got a lot of bookmarks or a lot of fingers or a lot of little sheets of paper stuffed in your Bible somewhere, keep something in Deuteronomy 28. And let's put something in Romans 6. And let's turn over there. Romans 6. And for this point, we're going to read verse 16, although we will cover the bulk of the first half of this chapter in our, in our lesson this morning. But Romans, excuse me, the latter half of this chapter, Romans 6 in verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, excuse me, of whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? What do we learn here? You are a slave to whatever you obey, to whatever you seek after, to whatever you follow after. You may not think you are serving, but you are. Ooh, that's an important point. Because how many times do we hear it in our time and in our society, if not in every time and in every society? I don't serve anyone. I'm my own man. I serve me. I do what I want to do. I'm in charge of me. No one is in charge of me. Is that not the mindset of our entire society, if not this entire world? I am my own. I belong to me. I serve no one. Oh, we've got a delay. We've got to work on this. Let's see. Let's go here. Let's go here. There we go. I'll put that up there. There is no more faithful servant of Satan than the man who thinks he serves no one but himself because you will serve something. And we just learned you are slaves to whom you obey and follow after. You are a slave to one or the other. And if I'm out here saying I serve no one, I got news for you. You're the most faithful servant of Satan there is because not only are you serving him, but you're out here telling others you're not and leading others to your way of thinking. I'm my own and I serve no one but me. It sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, that's what we want, right? We've already covered that. When you're a kid, you don't want to serve. I serve no one but me. That sounds great. Let me see how that guy's doing. There is no more faithful servant or better evangelist for Satan than the man who thinks he serves no one but himself. So as we've covered, point one, it is unavoidable that you will serve a master. Point two, see we're moving along. There's only five of these. You have a choice of what master you will serve. Well, that doesn't sound normal. Since when? Ever. Do slaves or servants get a choice of whom they are going to serve. That's not how the history of the world has ever worked. But in this case, that is how it works. Our third home-based passage this morning. Hope you got a lot of little giblets of paper or bookmarks. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. We're going to start, obviously, in verse 15. Most of you in this room can probably do this one by heart, but let's read it. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day. How many times have we said that? Choose you this day. We've quoted this more times than any of us can count in this room and in others just like it all across. 
choose who you will serve, knowing that you will serve something, but you do have a choice. Back in Romans 6, I promise you've got to keep a finger there. Romans chapter 6, we're going to bounce around a couple of verses here, and I'll you know, put my own emphasis as we're reading on the words we're, we're highlighting here. Romans 6, first let's look at verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Skip down to verse 16, which we read just a minute ago. Different emphasis. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? And last, verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. In each of these verses, we control who, I won't get this right grammatically, to whom we present ourselves as servants. So we get to choose who we serve. Well, you know, God's Word is great, and God loves us, and God doesn't ask us to make foolish choices. And God doesn't ask us to make choices without all the requisite information on which to base my choice. The promised outcome of each choice helps guide our decision. And in each of these cases, we see promised outcomes from multiple sides. Back in our, our original passage, Deuteronomy 28. Let's look at that. Let's go back there for just a second. Deuteronomy 28. We read verses 47 and 48 earlier. But let's, again, focus on a different part of it. The promised outcome of each choice. Deuteronomy 47, excuse me, Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 and 48. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore, you will serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger in thirst, in nakedness, in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Well, on one side we got the abundance of all things. All right. On the other side, hunger, thirst, nakedness, lack, destruction. That's the other side. God doesn't ask us to make choices without all the information needed. What about, our, again, our second passage, Joshua 24. We read verse 15 earlier, but we get more information in 16 and following. Joshua 24, 16 through 18. The people answered and said, after Joshua had said, Choose who you're going to serve. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord, our God, is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which he, we went, and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land, we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. That's one side. Skip down to verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done good to you. So on one side, great signs, preservation, victory over your enemies. The other side, harm, being consumed, destroyed. Those are the two sides we have to compare between the two. And then, and then last, again, our, our third home base of the morning, back in Romans 6, beginning in verse 20. Romans 6, beginning in verse 20. 
For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. On one side, righteousness and sanctification and eternal life. Well, what's the other side? Sin, shame, and death. And I love the, you know, the way Paul chooses to word this. It's an open-ended question. What benefit did you get from the way that leads to sin and shame and death? You know, I, I, he's, as I'm waiting for an answer, wh what did you get out of that? you got a choice to make, but we're giving you the answers ahead of time. And you just have to pick the one that looks better. Is it life, eternal life, blessings and happiness and righteousness, or is it sin and shame and death? You get to make a choice. And I'm telling you, here's the criteria on which to base your choice. But we do have the option to choose which master we will serve. I'm really struggling here uh, electronically. Let's see if we can. All right, there's our first two. So it's unavoidable you will serve a master. You have a choice of which master you will serve. Third, you must choose only one. So you cannot serve multiple masters. But we've already established you can't choose to just sit it out and not serve any master. So the choice we're left with is we must choose one and only one master. Now, we haven't mentioned this passage yet, but let's look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, I understand the context here is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount concerning more about the juxtaposition between God and serving the wealth and finances of this world. But it obviously applies on a much broader level. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The point here again, limited in, in its immediate context to God versus wealth and trappings of earth. But the point is much broader than that is anytime you got two sides where one is God and one is something not of God, you have to choose because your heart, your deeds, your actions, your entire life can only go with one. You cannot split and do both. Your loyalty stays with one. Romans chapter 6. Let's back up before we've what we've read previously. Romans 6, beginning in verse 11. I actually think this words it much more definitively, even than the words of Christ there in Matthew 6, saying we can't serve both. Here's how far Paul goes with it, beginning in verse 11 of Romans chapter 6. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are under law. You are not under law, but under grace. Not only can you not split your loyalties, you must be dead to one side and alive 
to the other. You can't even be alive to both. You are dead to one and alive to another, and we must choose one. But you know, you don't choose this in a survey. It's not a Gallup poll. It's not one of those Nielsen rating services. I don't really know how those work, so we'll just pretend. It's not a ballot box. It's not a voting booth. You don't have to register to vote. It's none of that. We don't choose by saying which one we choose. We choose with our mind and with our hands and with our feet. We choose with our actions every single time we make a choice. And you can't halfway choose one or the other. You know, and I, this, I realize this is a second reference this morning, but, you know, my, my childhood references come back in, into play. And, you know, my dad force-fed the Andy Griffith show to me from, you know, before I could talk. And there's an episode early on where some kids thought it'd be really funny to push the, uh, the sheriff's car in front of a fire hydrant so it looked like he parked illegally, and they thought that'd be real funny. And so they pushed it in front of the fire hydrant. They got caught. They got in trouble later, and, and the sheriff is talking to his son, and Son's saying, you know, you gotta, you got to go punish all those boys. And he said, well, well son, why, why shouldn't I punish you? He said, well, I wasn't sure, so I didn't push very hard. We can't have it both ways. We're either in or we're out. We're, we're acting or we're not acting, right? And every time we take an action, we are verbalizing our choice. There are several examples in the Bible of people being given a choice and then having to show their choice with their actions. And I could have picked, we could be here till next week doing these, but I just picked a couple. 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's everybody look there. All right, so what's going on in 1 Kings 18? We all know this story. This is Elijah versus the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Who is God? Who is the real God? Is it Jehovah God or is it Baal? And so all the people are gathered there because Elijah wants to show them and the prophets of Baal want to show them. Everybody wants them to follow their side, right? And so all the people of Israel are gathered there at Mount Carmel. Verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? There's their choice. How long will you hesitate? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. But the people did not answer a word. So then we have the whole scene that we all know the story, right? We build the, we build the altars and, and the prophets of Baal do all their crazy stuff, begging Baal to answer. He doesn't answer. Elijah's making fun of him the whole time and taunting him and still nothing happens. And then it's Elijah's turn as evening comes and he soaks his altar and so on. There's tons of detail about just how wet the altar was. But even despite that, a fire from God comes down when Elijah quietly prays and it's consumed. And clearly God has shown the right choice, right? God has shown the people who is the right choice, who is God. Skip down to verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah said to them, Then seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. The people of Israel saw the results. Again, though, like we talked about in our last point, they, they saw the evidence with which to make the right choice. And they made their choice. But how did they make it? They made it in their mind, and then they made it verbally. The Lord, He is God. They made it in their actions. They fell to their knees and worshiped. The Lord, He is God. And when Elijah said, then get up and do something about it, they got up and they did something about it. They showed their choice mentally, verbally, and physically. They showed their choice. We didn't have to wonder. Galatians 1, verse 10. 
Galatians 1 and verse 10. Paul talks about the choice that was available to him that he had to make. And we see what choice he made. Galatians 1 verse 10. Again, he's just previously gotten through a short discussion of people who for their own benefits, for their own bellies, for their own wallets would preach things contrary to the Word of God or slightly changing from the Word of God or drifting away and perverting the Word of God. And he asks in verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And when Paul says, I am a bondservant of Christ, you've got the entirety from Acts to the end of the New Testament just about to see in what way Paul carried out, I am a bondservant of Christ. You can go to the passages that list all the trials and tortures and pains he went through. You can read his personal narrative in Acts that Luke wrote for us to see what actually happened to him because of that. So when Paul says, I am a bondservant of Christ, it's not just a man saying, yep, I'm a Christian. And that's kind of the end of the story. No. Paul in every way, shape, and form with every minute of every day showed through his words, his deeds, and, every, and his thoughts, I am a slave of Christ. He made that choice. One more example of choice to look at and what to do with it, James chapter 4. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. The author here accuses the people and gives them a choice or tells them what the choice is. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility or enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's your two choices. You can be a friend of God and hostile to the world, or you can be a friend of the world and hostile to God. You can't be friendly with both. But it's beyond just saying or saying my choice is God or my choice is the world. Look down verse 7 and 8. If we're going to choose friendship with God, which by the way is also choosing hostility with the world, we have got to choose it and do something about it. Verse 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The recipients of this epistle, well how did they choose their master? They didn't just choose it again just by saying it or showing up for two hours on a Sunday morning or whatever the case may be. They chose their master by submitting, by drawing near, by cleansing and purifying themselves from the sins of this world. That's how you choose your master. Not verbally, not in a poll, but with your thoughts, your deeds, your actions, every minute of every day. That's how you choose your master. All right, let's see here. All right, so there's our points. It's unavoidable you're going to serve. You have to choose. You have a choice which master you will serve. But you only choose one. And again, you show that with your actions. Let's go to number four here. There we go. The master you choose has the right to tell you how to serve. Now, should that not be self-explanatory? Like, do I even need point four? If I'm a slave and I have a master, doesn't the master get to tell me what to do and how to do it? Like, that, that seems, this should kind of just be understood, right? If I'm the employee, I do what the boss says. If I'm the servant, I do what the master says. That, that just seems kind of self-explanatory. So, so why are we going to spend time on this? Because a quick look around the world, or look around your friends and your neighbors and everybody you know, will tell you that clearly we don't get this point. 
We might say we serve one. We might say we serve God. And how do we serve God? Well, we kind of make it up as we go. We serve Him in the way that seems best to us, in the way that seems to please us, and that's the religious world around us all day and every day. Simple, probably extreme examples, but simple ones. You ever heard a, a talk from a, a great athlete or a great entertainer, singer, somebody of just great earthly talents, and they, they claim to be Christian. And they'll, they'll say you know, how, how much they believe in God and, and, and want to do what's right. And you know, when, when asked about you know, maybe well, in what way do you actually participate in any form of religion or, or belief or any kind of faith? Say, well, I glorify God by using the talents He gave me. Consequently, in a way that's extremely profitable for me. You know, I, I play my Sunday morning football game. I, I hit the stage, you know, every weekend, everywhere I can go and in every, every bar I can sing in. I do this, I do that, I do whatever. I praise God by doing what I wanted to do with the talents he gave me anyway. Let's bring it on home a little closer than that. When I was graduating pharmacy school, it was a good time to graduate pharmacy school because there were a whole lot more jobs than there were pharmacists. And so you had a lot of job options when I graduated. Not always true, not true now, but at the time it was very true. So I went to interview with several different companies trying to choose what I wanted to do. Interviewed for this one uh, position at a, at a large big box retailer that has pharmacies. And uh, the position they were offering at the location they were offering was one where I was going to end up working roughly three out of every four Sundays and all day. Like it wasn't you know, morning, it was all day on a Sunday, roughly three out of four if I remember right. It's been a long time. And so I, I you know, the guy that was you know, recruiting me he was a nice guy, and so I, mean, I just told him bluntly that, that I, I have a problem with that. That's, you know, it's not going to work for me. But, you know, I don't despise your company. Maybe there's something else we can work out or some, some other position or something. You know, let's, let's get our options on the table. And, and he looked at me like I had six heads. And he said, son, you helping people and providing them with their health care, and this is in the days where there was an urgent care clinic on every corner, he said, and on days when their doctor's closed and they need health care advice and you're the only one they can get to, son, you're helping people with their health care and their drugs is your ministry before God and can easily take the place of worship. And that's how I always looked at it throughout my whole career. You know, honestly, believe it or not, I think the guy meant well. I really do. Nice guy. But he's just wrong. And so again, so why are we going to spend time on point four, something that should be self-explanatory? The master gets to tell you how to serve. You don't get to go, well, this is kind of what I want to do and helps my pocketbook and keeps me in the job I want and lets me do however things I want to do in life. And I get real rich off of it. Or it's my job and I provide for my family off of it or whatever the case may be. You don't get to choose that. The master gets to tell you how to serve. And he tells us in several of our home-based passages today, we won't turn them all, we're running out of time. Deuteronomy 28, in verse 47, he tells them, I want you to serve me with joy and gladness. It doesn't sound like a command of how to serve him, but it is. We're told to serve in joy and gladness. In our Joshua 24 passage, let's turn there because we didn't read this verse yet, back in verse 14. In our Joshua 24 passage, verse 14. Joshua tells the people before telling them how they got to choose. He tells them, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And I'll paraphrase the rest and put away the other gods. So how do we serve him in sincerity and truth and by putting everything else away? In our Romans passage. Actually, no, we'll come back to that. Josh, uh, let's turn to John 12. This is just about a simple simple and succinct statement as you can get on this issue. John chapter 12, Jesus speaking to his disciples. John chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus, our Lord, says, If anyone serves me, he must follow 
me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. How do we serve Jesus as our master? We follow, we emulate, we obey him. Follow doesn't mean we just with your feet when he's physically walking in front of me. Follow, emulate, obey. That's how we serve Jesus. Not by saying we serve Jesus and doing what we want to do, but I'm glorifying Jesus with my talents. No, we serve Jesus by doing what Jesus says to do. And then quickly back in Romans 6, I'm just going to hit a couple of phrases and verses we've already read. How do we serve? How are we told to serve? Romans 6, in verse 11, we're told to die to sin. In verse 13, we're told to be an instrument of righteousness. God has made you an instrument. How do we use the talent God has gave you? By being an instrument of righteousness. Verse 17, we're to obey from the heart, and we're to be committed to it. Obey and be committed. And then verse 18 and 19 both say we are a slave to be a slave of righteousness. Well, the Bible defines for us what righteousness is. Be a slave of righteousness. We don't get to choose how to serve. So a vital part of our service is finding out how the master wants us to serve and doing it. Again, that should seem self-explanatory to us, but when we look at the religious world around us, it's not. We do get to choose our master, but that right to choose how to serve doesn't belong to us. The master that we have chosen gets to tell us how we're going to serve. All right, let's see if I can get this one more move. All right, fifth and final point. Our service, our slavery, doesn't have to be as slaves. I'm going to have to clarify that one, obviously. So how can our service, which the Bible classifies as servanthood, servitude, slavery, bond service, how can something like that with that many negative connotations be filled with joy and gladness and abundance like God has promised in these passages we've seen this morning? Because when we choose to, using the terms of Romans 6, when we choose to present ourselves to God as His slave, God, here I am. Christ, here I am. I am your slave. He doesn't say, good, thank you, now you're my slave. We don't become His slaves. We become His children. Romans chapter 8. Let's turn over a couple of pages. Romans chapter 8. While we are slaves of God and must be, that is also an equivalent of being one of His children. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we might also be glorified with Him. We are adopted as His children, and if children, then heirs of His promises and blessings and everything He has to give us. You know, note in verse 17 that being His child, being His heir, doesn't eliminate suffering. Again, in verse 17, you know, if indeed we suffer with Him. So being a child of God and an heir of God doesn't eliminate suffering, but as mentioned earlier, we're never faced with a choice that God doesn't tell us everything on both sides we need to make the right choice. So we're told we may suffer a little if we become His slaves, then children, then heirs. But, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We may suffer a little, but it, it's not even a comparison. It's nothing we can even talk about. It's nothing to even put on a list of pros and cons because it doesn't even match up. The blessings of being his slave, then his child, then his heir 
are much more than any sufferings we may come across. So knowing this, how should we feel then about our slavery? Is it something that it's just something that sounds negative when we say it, but is it something negative? Well, let's look, let's continue in this context. Knowing that we as his slaves will also be his children, then his heirs, how should we feel about our willing slavery to him? Verse 23 and 24. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is not seen, hope, excuse me, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? We should approach it with eagerness and hope and perseverance in that limited suffering that we have. And down in verse 35, beginning there, skip down to Romans 8, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Oh, here comes some negatives. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. As is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That sounds awful. Verse 38. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. Older versions say we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Even as servants, even as slaves, even in difficult earthly times, we who are children, and if children, then heirs of God, have something better. And we are more than conquerors. You know, it doesn't always look like that. It may look like that here where we kind of got it easy, let's be honest. But there's a lot of places in this world where I don't see how it could possibly feel on a daily basis like being more than a conqueror when you are a child of God. That would be tough to feel that way sometimes. We look across this world and this religious landscape we have, and there are some people under extremely negative circumstances trying to serve God. We obviously have it relatively easy, but although we do have our own trials and temptations and sufferings here, sometimes the trappings of, of ease are the hardest thing to overcome, right? So it doesn't always feel like we're winning, but we are. Because as slaves, then children, then heirs of God, we are more than conquerors. We overwhelmingly conquer the other side. Because we have two choices, right? And we overwhelmingly conquer the other side if we choose slavery to God in Christ. You know, after thinking about it this way, slavery doesn't sound so bad. Depending on who your master is. It all depends on who your master is. So what's the take-home message? You know, what have we wasted our 40 minutes for? Have we, have we wasted them? You know, have we just filled up 40 minutes with some Bible passages so that we can say we were here this morning? Or, or, or have we learned something? What's our take-home from this? Since we will serve, and I believe the Word establishes that, and since we get to choose our Master, and I believe the Word establishes that, and since our choice is only one, and our choice is decided by our actions and what we do, and I believe we've established that, and since we're shown clearly which master is best to serve and which we've established that that master gets to tell us how to serve, ask yourself, which master am I serving? And I don't mean the one that we all know intellectually we should say. Well, I mean, I know the right answer to that one. You know, the answer is I'm serving Christ, right? We all know. If you're sitting here this morning, you know the right answer to the question. If you don't, see me after and we'll discuss that. You know the right answer intellectually and verbally, right? I'm a servant of Christ. I'm a servant of God. Who am I a slave to? God and Christ. Okay. We answer that question with our every word, our every thought, and our every deed, knowing that we are, at every moment of our life, serving one or the other. Which are you serving? And not just right now while we're sitting here. When you leave here, which are you serving? Who are you serving? Because if you serve the right master in the way that he wants you to serve, 
then we can enjoy our servitude knowing that any sufferings we may have, any inflictions we may have, anything that happens to us here, don't begin to compare with the blessings that we will gain from being a slave, then a child, then an heir of God through Christ. You realize that even now you're serving a master and have been and will be. Your actions reflect the master you claim to serve. Do you go through every day professing and showing which master you serve? Do you study his word to assure that you're serving him in the way that he has the right to tell you to serve him? Do you spend time in the word knowing that? Are you prepared to suffer temporary light affliction, but for a moment, in his service, in staying true to him? You know, to quote Joshua, it's on us. Choose this day whom you will serve. If you want to serve Jesus and you're ready to follow him and submit to him and draw near to him, then you can do so this morning by coming to him in baptism and become a child of his and a child and an heir of all the blessings he has to offer. If you've been following him, but you've been doing it your own way, or maybe not at all for a while, you can come back. You can serve him again. Serve him in the way that he asked you to serve him. Submit yourselves to him. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. If we can help you in any way, and you're subject in any way, come forward while we stand and sing.